All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Difficult Conversations by Supply the Why. Uh, my name is Dean. I'll be your conversational tour guide tonight. Uh, first off, a little housekeeping. I apologize. I was running a couple minutes late. I had uh, daddy duties that uh, held me up, so I hopefully uh, I didn't keep you waiting too long. So without further ado, we're going to go ahead and bring on a very special guest, Mr. Joe Willis. Joe, how you doing? Hey, good evening. Thanks for having me. Uh, hey, man, thank you for taking the time for, to, uh, to be here. Thank you very much. So, Joe, tell us a little bit about what you, you know, your background and, and what you got going with First Help and, and all the amazing work you're doing to help people that, um, that maybe, you know, might be a little hesitant to ask for help. Hey, so the, the short version is I'm the chief learning officer with an organization called First Help. Now, First Help, the mission is in our name, honor, educate, lead, and prevent. We work to end the stigma that surrounds mental health uh, for first responders. And we do that through honoring those we've lost to suicide by remembering who they were and uh, how they served prior to being lost. Uh, we educate the public, public servants, uh, leaders, you know, elected officials on the statistics, but also what surrounds the profession and some of the, the troubles and, and uh, trials that first responders go through. Uh, we work in that leadership space in so many different ways. We try to keep the conversation going at senior leader levels, elected officials, that sort of thing. But really, I hope what we talk about tonight is a lot of what we can do at the ground level, that, that first line level leader, the informal leaders and in agencies, uh, what we could be doing there. And then ultimately what most people will tell us after they've lost someone to suicide is uh, prevent the next. And we work day and night tirelessly to prevent the next. Now, uh, a little bit about my background. I am a retired military police first sergeant. Uh, for those of you that are uh, familiar with the Army and, and fellow vets out there, thank you very much for your service. Uh, I truly miss the, uh, the, the clowns, but not so much the circus. After retirement, I tell you, uh, I absolutely love my life and have loved the, the service. Um, as a military policeman, I was fortunate in being able to balance a lot of that, that time with uh, combat units, MTO, as my, my fellow uh, MPs will recognize, to the TDA, those law enforcement assignments. I absolutely learned a lot from my civilian uh, brothers and sisters and truly enjoyed the camaraderie and am now an advisory board member with an organization called ILEDA, the International Law Enforcement uh, Educators and Trainers Association, uh, where I work with fellow trainers to really uh, improve the profession in so many different ways. Uh, additionally, I've, I've worked as a uh, tactical trainer with an organization called Team One Network and since my retirement. And so I thoroughly love my brothers and sisters in blue and will throw my heart out to them. And especially right now, uh, our hearts go out to those in uh, Louisville, uh, given what they've gone through today. And uh, again, they're probably not alone. Uh, officers everywhere are going through a tremendous amount. So, uh, Dean, I hope that, Dean, I hope that, uh, uh, answered your question. Who am I and, and why am I here? It, it certainly does. And I just want to touch upon something you said at the outset. You talked about how a lot of what you do uh, initially is geared towards upper level management, um, senior management, command level um, folks. Why is that? And, um, and, and why do you think that's helpful? I do. And, and you know, I, I say that we try to balance it. So, um, why we address so much of the senior leaders in this space is because they're the purveyors of culture. You, as a senior leader in the space, are a purveyor of the culture. Uh, you own the culture of your organization. And 
there's so much that rides on your ownership of that. And so the more we can influence the conversation at your level, the more vulnerability and authenticity and genuine, sincere leadership that happens at that level, the more effective we'll be. But I mean, it, we all know that a lot of times it's grassroots. So we work there too. We work with trainers and, and frontline leaders, sergeants, lieutenants, corporals, uh, where leadership happens at the ground level. But strategically, operationally, it has to happen at senior leader levels. So I'm going to ask you a little bit, what is it like when you go into, or you have these conversations with senior leaders and you try to pitch, your, you know, you try to pitch your, your, your product and you say, listen, I'm trying to sell you on something that is preventative. And I think when you and I spoke, you know, the other day, we talked about how you're really trying to sell people on something that's not, there's no way to measure if it worked or not. So do you find that to be a big hurdle? Like, what is that like? You know, it's a mixed bag. I will tell you, when we first started this conversation in 2016, it was very different than it is today. Um, today, what we're finding is there are a lot more forward-leaning, ready to embrace the challenge senior leaders than there were a few years ago. Uh, that could be for any number of reasons. The data is more prominent. It's it's much more well-known. Uh, the stigma is much more uh, relevant today, or at least I think it's been relevant throughout our entire lives and definitely through our careers, but a lot more readily discussed. Uh, I also think that a lot of a generation that is slightly younger than you and I are coming into the, the senior leader spaces in the workforce and ready to have conversations that we, and I can only speak for me, but you may have had, and judging based on some of your previous conversations, I watched the show, uh, we were kind of dissuaded from, right? We were told, suck it up, drive on. Uh, if I, and I would tell my family, if we talk about this publicly, there's a chance I'm not going to keep my job, right? So, and I know I'm not alone in that. I know there are a lot of others that have had that conversation. And so I think some are coming into the space that are, are ready to have that conversation. So it's different now than it used to be even five years ago, uh, but it's still sometimes a challenge. And uh, it could be for any number of reasons. First of all, one of the things I do when I walk into a room and I'm ready to do training, I asked the group, how many of you work in wellness and resilience full time? And I will get in a room of 50 people, perhaps one that kind of does this, right? Like they're the wellness coordinator in the room and they look around at everybody else. And uh, even that person I challenge, is this the only thing you do? Because the reality is as a senior leader, I don't care if you're a sergeant or a chief, uh, as it works its way down, as the rubber meets the road, uh, the challenge of day-to-day -day leadership becomes very evident. You've got everything from strategy and policy to behavior to pick a subject that you're trying to deal with. And so, no, wellness is not your number one priority until we start peeling back the onion. And uh, maybe we'll talk about a little bit of that today. So it, it, it's interesting that you bring that up because, uh, and again, I don't want to get too far ahead, but wellness is, I would make the argument, it's, it's part of everybody's job to some degree. And the higher up in the organization you go, the more important it is for you to embrace that. And, and I'll give people a very simple example. Um, very few people do their job because they love it and would do it for free. So making sure that people get paid properly and get paid on time is part of wellness. Like you're taking that worry because we all, you know, most of us that work for a living have some level of financial obligation and financial burden, and it's worrisome. 
So taking that off the table, making sure that people are going to get paid right and paid on time is an important part of wellness. Absolutely. And pick a training topic. It doesn't matter what it is. You know, I just watched a, a First Amendment audit today, right? Uh, and it was painful to watch. But as I watched it, it occurred to me training. It doesn't matter what the training topic is. If you're investing yourself in your people and making sure they're properly trained for their job, it's part of wellness. It's part of their readiness. It's part of preparedness. And it's part of stress reduction. So without further, without, without going any further down the rabbit hole, let's get right into how do you prepare people to, to, you know, to kind of confront this before it becomes an issue. We talked a little bit about preventative, uh, a preventative strategy. So what kind of preventative strategies are you using? Yeah. So, uh, here at First Help, we operate off of what we call our responder readiness hub, right? So responder readiness uh, really starts with the individual responder. Now, tonight I'm talking primarily to a law enforcement audience, I think, but judging that you've got a tremendous audience, I'm thinking it goes much broader than that. There's a chance I'm talking to at least one firefighter, a nurse, a paramedic, a dispatcher somewhere. I guarantee it uh, because you're following this as well. So when we look at the responder, we have to look at uh, performance, persistence, and prevention. On the performance side, stress. The reality is stress is inevitable. We're going to deal with it. The reality is we have to learn how to embrace it. Now, Dr. Kelly McGonigal is where we draw a lot of our stuff from, but there is a tremendous amount more that we pull into this that if there were plenty of time, maybe we'll talk about it. I don't know. But when we first experience a stressful moment, we have the desire to uh, experience fight or flight. Our polyvagal response kicks in and that elephant, as we talk about in our class, we've got an elephant and a rider. The elephant is all of the mid and lower brain stuff that's going to happen. It's concerned about three things, basically. Can I eat it? Can it eat me? And can I mate with it? Sitting on top of that is the rider, right? And that's our prefrontal cortex where all of the executive function happens. In the fight or flight moment, that elephant begins to make a sound or do something. And that is our body's stress response. It is physical, it's emotional, it's cognitive, and it becomes behavioral in some way. Those are like a dashboard, the gauges that start to happen. And when those start to happen, we say that's like the elephant making that noise, which if you had a sound effect, Dean, I'd, I'd recommend making it because for my own dignity, I'm not going to. But uh, when it makes that noise, mm -hmm. I have a choice to make. My prefrontal cortex can engage. And Dr. Stephen Covey tells us that uh, we have an obligation to give us about 90 seconds between stimulus and response to make sure that we're not just spontaneously reacting, right? In that moment, what we recommend is asking ourselves, how would my future self want me to respond? And that activates a little bit deeper, not deeper, but higher level of thinking. And Kelly McGonigal tells us that we have essentially three basic responses from there that we can come to. We've got a challenge response, which is in this moment, I'm going to rise to the challenge. Our says that we don't rise to the challenge. We sink to the level of our training. But the reality is we, you, you get this and, and we've prepared for that. Right. So in this moment, I can meet this challenge. And so many of us are prepared to do this. And without a doubt, the majority of people listening to this podcast have. And so uh, that's one option. I can rise to this challenge or at least meet it. The other one is I can be excited about this. And I, I 
hesitate to say this on a podcast, but I, I will to some extent. Uh, but in a closed group, I get people talking about that excitement we feel the first time the lights and sirens come on and you're moving to something. The sound of the guns, whatever it is, it's an excitement feeling. You've trained for this moment. You know this is what your purpose is. It's okay to feel that way. That is your body's stress response. When you look at that, the video of the Nashville active shooter situation recently, that's exactly what that was. Mm -hmm. That was rising to a challenge, and that was men and women ready to meet whatever challenge lied in front of them. And I guarantee their body, that fight or flight response, was in a very different place for them. And my, my heart's beating, the hair on the back of my neck standing. I can tell. I love it. I'm feeling your excitement. And the last one is tendon befriend. Now, we talk about in, in detail all of the, the chemicals that uh, flow through our bodies, the, the neurotransmitters and uh, uh, the, the hormones that flow through our bodies that make these stress responses possible. But among the most powerful is this one called oxytocin. Pretty much everybody's heard of it, right? It's the cuddle drug. It's the one we get when we pet a cat. But the reality is it's the same one that causes you to reach across and restrain a child sitting next to you in the car. It's the same one that will cause a soldier to jump on a grenade to save others and will cause somebody to dive in front of a bullet. That is our desire to protect the team. And when oxytocin is flowing and we ask ourselves, how would my future self want me to respond? And we answer the question with, I want to protect this team. And maybe in this moment, this team is this person sitting in front of me who I feel like yelling at because they are my employee and that's probably what I want to do in this moment, but I'm not going to, or my 17 year old or my spouse in this moment, I want to protect this team. And so we dive into the stress piece on the, um, I'm trying to make this a little quicker uh, on the, uh, so that's the uh, uh, one component of it. When we get into the difficult conversations piece, when we get into the persistence module, that's results-oriented communication. How do we have those? We use a simple five-step model. Um, I'm not gonna dive into a lot of detail on it tonight, but essentially it is, I sense these things. I feel this way. I think these things, this is what I want. Let's get a commitment, let's do this. I sense, I think, I feel, I want, let's do. Um, and so it kind of frameworks the, the conversation. And the last thing we do is we dive into the range of resilience, which is five very simple resilience skills uh, that are can be as complex as we want them, but at the same time are uh, easy to attain for mm -hmm. anyone who wants to be involved in. So let me so ask you a very quick version of responder readiness. So can I ask you about the second step a little bit? So it was, uh, it was I think, I yeah, so feel was the third one. Right. Feel like the feel and think are interchangeable because the, the dual processing model emotionally and cognitively will experience things almost at the same rate. And so in this moment, uh, stealing from Brene Brown here, the story I'm telling myself is the I think. And sometimes we'll work ourselves up in the I think space and in the I feel space. We're not really as a culture able to articulate our emotions that's and, where i was going okay please yeah so i i found that you know somebody who's taken pot in, in uh in 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 schisms uh which is essentially folks you know that aren't in law enforcement or you're not a firefighter 
you know, it's basically it's 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 when you have a, a you debrief a critical incident and mm-hmm. you sit down with your team and you talk about, um, you know, what happened, you know, according to everybody's point of view, uh, what went wrong uh, and what you thought might have gone wrong. But the toughest piece is always talking about the feeling piece. I feel like a lot of type A folks that are first responders that do this kind of work, they have a very difficult time talking about what they feel versus what they think. But so to me, the gap is large because it's easier to talk about what you think um, than it is what you feel. Do you find that at all? Oh, 100%. So the very first step is the I sense. And I think we're pretty good at that. But to, to summarize, the I sense piece, take a triangle and we've got the things we actually sense, five senses, the, the thoughts we have or the perceptions we have. And we are able to typically toss that out there. I just saw this. I heard you say this. My gut's telling me that sort of thing. On the I think piece, some people find it easy to say, hey, the story I'm telling myself is, you know, I called, she's not answering. These things are happening, right? But the I feel, what I challenge all the listeners to do right now and just pull out your phones or you're on it already probably flip to another screen real quick and check uh what's called the Im- wheel of emotions now here's just world according to willis just bear with me on this the <laughs> and and there's a bit of a stereotype buried in this and given that you're really good at difficult conversations feel the feel free to pull the threads on me but here's here's the reality through socialization we as men are often discouraged from talking about emotions very early in our upbringing. And don't take my word for it. Google commercials, Disney cartoons, doesn't matter. There's plenty of socialization out there to show you this. And what I like in this too is, do you have Friendly's up there still, Dean? Friendly's ice cream? Yeah. There's there's not many left, but there's, there's still, they're still out there. Do you remember taking your kids to it back in the olden days and they would give them the three pack of crayons and they were really crappy crayons, oh, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So that's essentially what a lot of us as men are given for describing our emotions, this little three pack of crayons and through good parenting and uh, good teaching, some are able to uh, expand that to an eight or a 16 pack. Right. Women, on the other hand, many are given only that three, but the majority are encouraged to use up to eight initially and through good parenting and socialization, good teaching might even get a 64 pack. But here's what happens when we try to describe emotions, we get one crayon and we try to color it anger. And I will take this thing I'm feeling and call it anger. What the reality is, it could be overwhelmed. It could be vulnerable. It could be, uh, I don't know, pick a color, but it becomes fuchsia. And the pack I was given does not include fuchsia. And that's just the reality. I don't have the language to describe it. And here's where I think that we all have an obligation as leaders in this space of wellness. And I don't care if you are a DT instructor, a uh, a BLS instructor, it doesn't matter to me, or a sergeant, a captain, doesn't matter. We have an obligation to encourage speaking when it comes to our emotions, because people will default to anger. It may not be anger you feel. And I think that's one of the things that we could do a lot better at is just pulling the thread on, eh, what is it really? I, I wish I could pull the thread on that, but you, I mean, you caught me, I mean, I was nodding my head. I, I love that crayon analogy. That, that makes a ton of sense that you, you just, you have people, they just can't figure out how to access 
their feelings because to your point, especially in our our generation, you look like you're probably around my age where I am uh, I am closer to 50 than I am 40. And uh, it just wasn't the way it was done when we, when we were young, it was just kind of like, you know, suck it up and, and go back out there and, 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 and all that. But you're right. The younger generations, they want to discuss things. They want to talk, they want to talk about the why and they want to, they want to be included and they want, and they do want to talk about their feelings a little bit more. So that's been an adjustment, um, you know, being a supervisor of people in that generation and, and now um, being, being a, uh, a, a senior member of, of a law enforcement agency. So great point there. I like that a lot. So can we talk a little bit about somebody comes to uh, somebody's in crisis, right? Cause, and I'm hoping that this show finds somebody somewhere that, um that really needs to hear this information. How do you help people that come to your organization um, because they're struggling? Yeah. So there is, uh, it's, it's very contextualized. On a national level, you've obviously got 988, right? Which is a tremendous resource that has grown exponentially over the last few years. As far as- so, Joe, can you just talk about that? Let's not, I don't want to assume that people know what that is, 988. Absolutely. 988 is what is now the, uh, 273 talk, the old suicide hotline, right? Which used to be able to connect with and, and get a variety of different uh, resources. Um, at this point, as they've gone to 988, they use a lot of local resource centers. So if I am in, I'm in Madison, Wisconsin, if I call a 988 number, it's going to connect me to someone locally. And the same thing is true if they're in a rural area around here. And it may be um, a Minneapolis that somebody connects with, but it's at least somewhat regional to me. So where you are in Boston, Dean, somebody calls from, I don't know, Western Massachusetts, there's a good chance I don't know where the one in Massachusetts is, but it's at least regional. And so there's a lot of regional resources and regional cultural awareness that they have as far as what's available for resources locally. Um, again, you've got the ability, if you're a veteran, to my fellow vets out there, press one immediately and you are connected to the veteran helpline. So uh, there's a tremendous amount of resources there. Cop line. I, I actually, I just looked up. I see you have it on the screen. Cop line, uh, cop to cop. There are resources that are immediately available to you at both of those. Um, the uh, I don't I should have pulled one of my resource cards over here. Um, the uh, uh, additionally, you've got uh, organizations like the uh, Firefighter Behavioral Health or um, uh, International Firefighter Center of Excellence. Tremendous resource. Uh, IAFF Center of Excellence. They will connect you immediately with a variety of resources that are uh, are available to you. Um, we work with Carrollton Springs is another one. So these are national level resources. But what I encourage when we are training locally, when we do this drill with senior leaders, and when I say senior when leaders in general, when we do a supervisor class, that is chiefs to sergeants sitting in a room, actually even informal leaders are welcome to join, FTOs, that sort of thing. Uh, or in our responder class, we do it a little bit differently, but uh, in the supervisor class is how we do it. We have them uh, spend time actually researching local resources. Because 
if I stand in front of a room full of people and I ask, actually the video we play, I, I wish I could pull it up and play it for you right now. It's uh, Robin Slade's video, uh, The Hero's Heart. Uh, I highly encourage you, Google it, check it out. She is a phenomenal performer. She wrote this song called The Hero's Heart. We use it and it is essentially a about the music video we helped her produce. Um, it's about these three first responders and the troubles they're going through. And at the end, I, I only play about two minutes of it, or any of our facilitators do, about two minutes. And it ends with just two very simple slides uh, before we start the activity. Uh, I need help. And then it goes, screen goes black. What options do I have? Screen goes black again. And then I just look at the room. And it does not surprise me, even a room full of experienced leaders, those that would say, well, I take them to the emergency room. I will tell you right now, unless it's a medical emergency, that is not the place to take them. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, I think you know that and many of us do, but it does not at this point no longer surprises me the number of people who will tell me that. So the right time to answer that question is right now. Now, uh, both Dean and I just gave you a, a list of about five different national level resources. But wherever you are, wherever you're listening to this, here's two things I would recommend. Number one, you have an EAP, most likely. Almost every agency in this country has an EAP. And when I ask your first responders that work for you, do you trust your EAP? I get a mixed set of reviews yep. and it causes a tremendous conversation and i love it so here's what you do you're a supervisor you are a peer support specialist or you're just somebody who cares about the men and women left or right of you uh pick up the phone and call your eap and say i have a friend who's experiencing an alcohol addiction problem what are my options i have a friend who told me she's depressed what are my options and get that list from them and then you call that list, start having a conversation with those people and make your own list of who I would trust. Now you can do this. One of the examples that was just given at a uh, conference I was at in uh, Ocean City, they said, um, got the list from the EAP. Number one on the list had anti-police rhetoric on their Facebook page. How well is that going to go? Next next right <laughs> but when's the right time to find that the wrong time to find it is when i've got this person sitting in front of me saying joe i need help right and so if i were local if i were still in an agency if i were a leader that would be one of the things i would do especially if i'm in peer support or in that space um i was at one agency and uh i had it was all leaders in the room uh, sergeant and above and uh one of the lieutenants told me the only way for people to get the contact info for EAP is they have to go upstairs to HR where they've got this stack of cards. And so I looked at her and said, how many of those cards do you have in your car right now? I hope by your next shift, you have more than that. The reality is, as leaders, we got to lean into the space. We got to be ready for the conversations. And if we know there's a potential for somebody to ask the question, be there with the answer. All right. Good stuff. Joe, I got a question really quick. Um, believe it or not, we're already at 27 minutes. Wow. In counting. That flew by. So Mike has a question or his comment. He says, I love to ask responders where they feel experiences in their bodies. Responders numb the bad and unwittingly numb the good right along with it. What's your reaction to that thought? I, I think that's a very um, – that's a that's kind of deep there, Mike. I like it. Yeah, it is. 
let, let me be honest. I know Mike. I've, I've worked with Mike. And Mike is actually our training coordinator. And so uh, it is a tremendous question. And what we've experienced is that uh, all of us uh, have a tendency of, as we experience a bad, uh, we want in some way to numb it, whether it is to push it down and deny it uh, or to self-medicate. We want to get rid of those bads. But the thing about getting rid of bads is we don't acknowledge the fact that it also numbs the goods. Uh, you know, if you look at that, a great example, most of us have seen it, but I'm going to promote it one more time. Brene Brown's video on vulnerability. She does a great job explaining this. Now, when we numb the bad, we have no choice but to numb the good. And I think what Mike might be getting at there, and Mike, feel free to chime in one more time with this. Um, there's a there's a risk that each time we take that sandpaper and we try to smooth over uh, the bad, right? We have no idea how much of the good is going with it. And before we know it, there's not much left to the surface and there's very little left to give to the people around us. And by that, I mean, yes, I'm, I'm talking largely to leaders tonight, but uh, whether you're a peer support specialist, but the reality is I'm talking to men and women who have wives and kids and husbands uh, and, and parents, right? We have very little left to give them. And so at the end of the day, uh, when you numb the bad, you're numbing the good. And when we fail to lean into any amount of emotion, we have no idea what's going with it that that's a gem right there joe uh, i'm i'm oh, i mean we could go on and on about this subject i mean there's so many different ways um that people end up in the space uh if anybody could take anything away from this even if you are not in this space right now and you're just watching just you know cuz you're sitting around on a monday night and there's there's not much else going on somebody in your circle needs to hear this you can bet on that, whether you are military, fire, um, a dispatch, brothers and sisters, certainly our police officers, somebody needs to hear this. And you'd be doing them a favor, sharing this and just send it out blindly saying, hey, you know, this is worth the, you know, the half hour or so to check out this information. And you'll never know if you help that person. But you could pretty much guarantee that somebody somewhere um, will benefit from this. I don't think anybody... Um, anytime you have a loss like this, I don't, there's very few people that say, Hey, I knew that was going to happen. You know, people are usually caught off guard and they're shocked. So please, um, please get that out there. So Pat says, excellent info. Hoorah. And Mike says, love the conversation. So much great info. So Joe, really quick. If tell us how people can follow you. If people want to learn more, certainly if people want to uh, reach out to you or, 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 um, or, or, or blue help, excuse me, first help if they want to do that without, you know, you know, they want to do it quietly and yeah. privately. How can they do that? So the easiest way is to follow us at, at firsthelp.org, 1sthelp.org. You'll be able to find all of our social media, the website. We have all of our statistics available right there on a page called The Numbers. Uh, if you want to reach out to me directly, uh, Joe at firsthelp.org, Joe at 1sthelp.org. I'm available on LinkedIn and other social media platforms. Uh, 
And actually, we're going to be up in the New England area, Dean. I don't know if I've even yeah. had a chance to talk to you about this. So it's actually going to be one of our other trainers, Mike, who was just on here with a question a minute ago. Um, he's going to be up in Concord, New Hampshire on May 15th, Chicopee, Massachusetts on May 16th. And then we're looking for someone out your way. Uh, we've got uh, potential going with uh, some folks in the Boston area uh, for May 17th. And so uh we are looking forward to being up there this is all grant funded training we if you want to learn more about that firsthelp.org training you'll be able to find all of our training information there grant funded completely free to agencies in that area so are you are you looking for a venue that third that third date are you looking for a venue is that what it is and we are in fact actually we thought we had one and then I don't, I don't know mike feel free to jump in here by chat or whatever but we can we can reach out afterwards for sure but uh no we are actually looking for a boston area venue uh somewhere on the uh, the 17th somewhere uh, a little bit more towards the east well i'll tell you what um i'm gonna say this um have you reached out to the mptc the municipal police training council of, Mass of massachusetts okay that's that because they they have some great um they have some great spaces where they where they host a ton of training, um and they train they train a lot of our law enforcement personnel, um, that might be an option. But if you're looking for something bigger, um, there's certainly um, there's no shortage of colleges and universities around here either. So um, we can certainly talk offline on that. So Joe, um, I just want to thank you again for taking the time out to uh to have this difficult conversation, um. It's not a sexy topic. People don't go, ooh, suicide prevention. But it, it, if you have been in this line of work for a long time, you, you're you going to know somebody who this has touched. And when you feel that kind of a loss, when you're at a, you know, when you work with somebody or you went to the academy with somebody, or even if you were in a training with somebody and next thing you know, they're gone because they, they weren't able to, um to overcome what was, what was, what was, what was eaten at them. It hurts. So, so thank you for doing this. Well, thank you for having us. All right, folks. Well, that's going to do it for tonight's episode. If you like the content, please like, please share, and please follow us on all your favorite social media and podcast platforms. So on behalf of Joe and everybody else, have a great night. And as always, hashtag supply the why. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody.